Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. Most gracious Father, as we come once again to your word, I ask that in your grace you would add your blessing to this reading of your word, and that you would strengthen me, fill my words with yours, that I may proclaim the gospel boldly as I ought, that we all might be strengthened. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as we come to this section of Samuel, a lot of commentators point out a particular oddity. And that is that uh, here's this book named Samuel. And so far, Samuel, the the figure, uh, this, this prophet, has figured heavily into the story. Everything that we've dealt with has been about his surprising birth and his being given uh, to to serve at the temple and then his work there and him hearing from God. But from chapter 4, verse 2, all the way through chapter 4, all the way through chapter 5, all the way through chapter 6, and into the first couple verses of chapter 7, Samuel is never mentioned. And so this causes biblical scholars to wonder, like, well, what's going on here? Why is all of this happening? And as we read this story in its narrative context, what we begin to see is that there's a number of kind of narrative layers that are being stacked on top of each other. And, And as such, there's a number of points that are being made. And as we see this week and next week, as we look at, at 1 Samuel 4, 5, and 6, what we're going to see this week is that God is not a God who can be used. And what we're going to see next week in chapters 5 and 6 is that God is not a God who can be tamed or conquered. So God cannot be used. God cannot be tamed or conquered. That's, that's the point of what's going on in these chapters. And it really sets up the rest of the story of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. Because over and over again, what we see, and and really all through Israel's history, what we see is the people of God vacillating back and forth between trying to use God and trying to tame God. And what we see throughout Scripture and throughout the history of the world is, is all of creation does this exact same thing. At times we try to use God. At times we try to tame God. But neither can be done. Another layer that we see here, if you remember, Samuel was given kind of in replacement to Hophni and Phinehas as this prophet announced that Eli's house would come to an end. But there was this oddity that instead of him being given as a replacement as a priest, he was said to be a prophet. Now, one of the interesting kind of literary devices that is used in ancient Israelite literature and, and other ancient literature is when somebody is declared to be something, then often the next story that is told is a story that shows that they really are that thing. So if a, someone is announced as king, then the next thing that happens is, is they're shown that they're a good king. Right? We see this in the story of David and Goliath. You knew I was going to mention it, right? 1 Samuel 16, he's made king. 1 Samuel 17, he goes out and wins the day and is shown to be the true king in replacement of Saul. Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, uh, Samuel is announced as a prophet of God. And the prophecy that he delivered to Eli was this. Your house is going to come to an end. And your boys, Hophni and Phinehas, these corrupt priests, are going to be killed. Well, that's exactly what we just read, isn't it? 
So part of what happens is happening in this is that, that the, the word of God is showing Samuel to be who the word of God has declared him to be. Remember, a prophet is known by, by whether his prophecies come true or not. And here they do. So Samuel is being lifted up and, and presented in the stories. Hey, this is somebody that you need to listen to. This is somebody that you need to pay attention to. He's the true prophet of God who will bring the word of God to the people of God. And you must pay attention. But there's these other layers written into this story. As that is announced, and as Samuel is shown to be the true prophet, there's other things going on here. All of a sudden, there's this new character that hasn't shown up in the book of Samuel yet called the Philistines. Now, they've shown up in Israel's history before. They're in Judges, they're in Joshua, and they are kind of a persistent problem for Israel. They were always fighting with Israel. They were just always a problem for Israel. So it's not really, if you've been following the story from the beginning, it's not really a surprise that, oh, here are the Philistines again, picking a fight with Israel, and, and, and it's a struggle. That shouldn't surprise us at all. So that happens, that they come and they fight, but it tells us that the Philistines won. Israel was defeated by the Philistines. 4,000 soldiers died. And then it records for us how the elders responded. And here's where we start to see some problems. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? That's a great question. Well, what's going on? Well, when, we, when we face some difficulty, it's totally appropriate to go, okay, well, what's going on? What do we need to know? What do we need to do? But here's the problem. They weren't asking God. They weren't going to Yahweh saying, God, what is happening? What do we need to know here? Give us a word. Where is Samuel? They were just having a conversation among themselves. And so, like we often do when we have these kinds of conversations among ourselves, they decided we need to come up with a solution to our own problem. And so that's what they did. They're asking each other. They're, they're having, you know, the elders are all, they're having a session meeting going, why is the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? And someone makes a motion. I move that we bring the Ark of the Covenant to the, to the battle line. Now, remember the Ark of the Covenant. I talked to the kids about it. It, it, it dwelt in, in the Holy of Holies, the, the most holy place. Nobody could go in on top of the Ark of the Covenant was where the glory of God settled between the cherubim. And, and, and if you went in to its presence, you were in the very presence of God. And if you weren't the high priest going in on the Day of Atonement, according to all of the rules, you died. That's just how it worked. The Ark of the Covenant was only supposed to move when the glory cloud moved, when it lifted and, and, and it was time to set off, in other words, when God decided it's time to move, that's when you could move the Ark of the Covenant. And there, there was a particular part of the, of the tribe of Levi, a particular clan of the tribe of Levi, and their job was carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And they had these poles. They weren't even allowed to touch it. There were rings built on the Ark, and they would stick these poles through, and that's how they carried the Ark around. And they would follow the glory cloud, the, the pillar of cloud and fire. They would follow it around until it stopped somewhere. Then they would set the Ark of the Covenant down and set up the tabernacle, and the glory would dwell on the Ark. That was how it was supposed to work. Notice that's not what they're doing. Notice what they do is go, you know what? What we need is some good luck. 
That's what we need. Let's go get the Ark of the Covenant and let's bring it to the battle line. For surely then what we want to happen will happen because we will have God on our side. Notice what they're doing here. They're using God. That's it. They're using him. They've said, this is our will. Our will is that we whip the Philistines. We weren't able to do that. We need something extra. Go get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it here. Let's do this in the name of God. Maybe then he'll help us accomplish our will. See, they've got everything exactly backwards. They've got everything exactly backwards. They're treating God using this this religious relic where he has dwelt. They're treating that as as this kind of uh, lucky rabbit's foot. That, That if we bring it, then we win. See, here's what's interesting. They were treating God They were treating Yahweh exactly how the priests had been treating Yahweh. Remember what Hophni and Phinehas were doing. They they were taking whatever they wanted from the people. They were sleeping with the women who served in in the tabernacle. They, They were using God for their glory and for their gain and for their good. So it should be no surprise then that the people led by priests using God for their own glory decide the way we need to move forward is to use God to accomplish our will. And so that's exactly what they do. But the problem with this is that, that, that nation building with Yahweh as our totem is idolatry. It's sinful. In anything that we do where we say, X is my will. And now I'm going to bring God into it so that I make sure it gets accomplished. That's using God. That's idolatry. That's treating God like a lucky rabbit's foot that we rub so that our will is accomplished. They weren't hearing from God of this is what you need to do. They were taking the matter into their own hands. And this wasn't a problem just for them. Israel did this repeatedly. They had done this previously. Remember, when when Moses was up on the mountain too long, what they do? They well, let's make an idol and figure it out that way. When the Gibeonites show up, they don't seek God. They're just like, okay, sounds good. We'll strike a deal. And they're deceived. We, We go into the New Testament, we see the exact same thing. The disciples had the same problem. Jesus... We want to know who's going to sit at your right hand. We're, we're in this for the glory. Who's going to get the good seat when we get to heaven? We look at Simon the Magician in Acts. Man, the stuff the apostle's doing is super legit. I want to be able to do that also. How do I buy this spirit? He goes to the apostles like they're running some kind of magic shop and can sell them this Holy Spirit gimmick so that that they can heal people and speak in tongues and and do really cool stuff. And they're like, that's not how this works, Simon. 
And, and we have an entire like heretical church practice now called simony, which is buying and selling office and, and privilege in the church from that incident. But here's the deal, if we're honest. This serves as a warning for us because really nothing has changed, has it? We still do the same thing. We, we still go, okay, here's what I want to accomplish in life. Here, here's how I want my life to look. Here, here's the freedom I want. Here's the liberty I want. Here's the safety I want. Here's the happiness I want. Here's the success I want. Here's the outcome I want for my kids. Here's this, 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 this. Here's the career I want. God, make it all happen. Bless it. I'm going to do all of this in your name. See, when we approach life that way, what we're doing is we're saying, here's what I want. God, lead the way. The Bible actually says that, that that's the entirely wrong way to approach life. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, and all this stuff will be added to you. See, see what we're called to do is not say, God, here's, here's all the things I want. What's the way to make this happen? You come get in front. You're my co-pilot. You're Jesus, take the will. Whatever silly, stupid things you want, do it. Just make it happen. Make it awesome. Make my life blessed. The, the Bible repeatedly is like, no, no, no. That's not how this works at all. You come to me. You seek me. You, you, you ask me, God, God, what's my place in the kingdom? Let me tell you that. God, what does my life need to look like serving you? Let me tell you that. God, where do I need to go? What do I need to do? Uh, let me tell you those things. That's how I lead the way in your life. See, we flip the script all the time. All the time. We get together and we go, why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines today? Ah, I know what we need. We need a little bit of God in the equation. Let's go get the ark. And we try to use God. And instead of praying, like we do every week, Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I had to say the whole thing because I couldn't remember that line without saying the whole thing. We say, our Father in heart in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Help me accomplish my will in your holy name. And that's not what God's called us to. That's not what he's called us to at all. And the result for the Israelites is they get obliterated. They get absolutely, instead of 4,000 people, now 30,000 people are dead. And, and the Philistines' response is interesting because, because in some ways they've got a, a better response than Israel because they're like, oh, what's this uproar? What's going on? Oh, why is there all this noise? Why are they so excited? Oh, God has come into their midst. Because remember, the, the, the way the ancient Near East worked is every kind of regional body, every, every little uh, tribe or, or, or nation had their gods that they served. And, and every battle was a religious battle. There, there was no such thing as just a, a political war. I, I'm not sure there, there is today. But, but then explicitly, every battle was a religious battle. If I fought and you fought and we won, that meant my God was better than yours. That's just how it worked. If you won, that meant your God was better. And so they're like, oh, 
Okay, well, we know something about this God. The stories had spread. This is the God who defeated the Egyptians. Egypt was the superpower. They were the people that you didn't mess with. These are the Israelites whose God defeated them with all kinds of plagues. We are done. But the Philistines, taking a play out of our book, say, oh, no, no, take courage and be men. I want to pause and give a side warning here. There's a line of of, of thought in, in contemporary Christianity that's all about being a man for God. I want us to, to read the story and remember that the first call to be a man and, and go and win and go and fight that, that we find in the Bible is coming from, from pagans. So it's entirely possible that, that, that when we hear that call, go be a man, and, and it's rooted in self-preservation like it is here, that we're not actually talking about something Christian at all. At all. That's their call. Be a man. Fight. Lest you become slaves to the Hebrews. See, here's the problem, and here's what we begin to see. The Israelites and the Philistines actually had the same approach to life. And it was self-preservation. One used God for self-preservation, for self-protection, for self-promotion. The other just said, we got to get it done. Be a man. Take it on yourself. Go win. But they're actually approaching life the exact same way. Through the lens of self-preservation and self-protection. Do you want to be slaves to the Hebrews? You better man up. You better step up to the plate and fight. And they do. And they obliterate the Hebrew people. 30,000 Israelites die. And and again, we may be asking the question that the elders were, what is going on? God is fulfilling his word. That's what's going on. He had said, I will bring an end to the house of Eli. He had said, Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, these corrupt priests, that they would die. Guess what happens? They're the ones who show up with the ark. The users of God, the the, the priests who use God and use their position for for their glory, they show up with the ark and they're like, let me show you how to do it. Let me show you how to use God to get what you want. And God says, no, we're done with that. And they die and the Israelites lose. And the Philistines take the ark and leave. They take the ark and leave. Now, now, I I don't know what in our civil life would even begin to compare to this. But that was the defining thing for Israel. Remember how, when when their camp was set up, when they were wondering, remember how it was set up. The, The ark of God was in the middle of the tabernacle, which was in the middle of all of the people of Israel. Three tribes here, three tribes, three tribes, three tribes on each side. That was the the center of their life was the presence of God. They didn't move unless he moved. 
Everything about Israel was supposed to be defined by and centered on the presence of God with them. And that presence was was uniquely attached to the Ark of the Covenant. And now, that's gone. It raises these questions that that, that we've been talking about so far in, in the book of Samuel of hope, security, and identity. Because see, as long as they were following the ark, as long as they were with the presence of God, as long as he was leading them, they won. They defeated the superpowers. They cleared the land. If they were walking where he led, they won. Because they were walking in their identity as the people of God. What do you do when that's not an option anymore? What do you do when, when, when the very presence of God that has defined you and that should define you is captured and taken away? Where is your hope at that point? Where is your security at that point? Where is your identity at that point? It's gone. It's gone. Phineas's wife was pregnant at this time. Her father-in-law's dead. Her husband's dead. And the ark has been captured. And she has this kid. She dies in childbirth. And she names him, names him Ichabod. Well, which is a combination of, of two Hebrew words, an interrogative, interrogative particle, i.e., and the word kavod, which is glory. It, it, very technically translated to be, where is the glory? And, and so she says... I'm named him Ichabod because the glory has departed from Israel. We're done. That's essentially the kid's name. We're done. The glory's gone. Our God has been defeated and has been carried off by pagans. Now, of course, we know the rest of the story. We know that, that that's actually not the whole story. We, we know that, that God was at work here to fulfill what he said would happen to Hophni and Phinehas. We, we know that God was at work as a loving father here to discipline his children so that they could see, no, no, I'm not a God who can be used for your will. I'm not a God who gets used for your glory. And, and when we get to the, the, the prophets like Isaiah and, and they're, they're applying the law of God to the people of God, one of the things we hear repeatedly is, my glory I will not give to anybody else. Not even my people. It's my glory. I'm calling you to walk according to my will. Not your own. I'm not here just to make what you want come about. But that's how we approach God sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes our prayer life looks more like an episode of Shark Tank than actually seeking God's will. We go and we say, hey, God, I've got this really great idea. Do you want in for 10% of the glory? And he's like, no, actually I don't. And your eye is done. Maybe he doesn't say that. But you get the point. We're approaching it completely backwards. And when we do that, we're left 
Ichabod. The glory has departed. But we'll do whatever we can to convince each other, no, 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 you're doing good. It's all right. Just keep pushing. Just keep having faith. Just keep believing. When in reality, sometimes what we need to say to each other is, hey, I think you're approaching this in reverse. Maybe go to God and say, God, what is your will for this situation? Strengthen me for that. God, you give me the desires of my heart. In other words, the desire, you, you put the desires there. What a tragedy it would be if he just gave us what our hearts desire. Because that would be horrible. Rather than giving us the, the desires themselves. The ark for Israel was the defining point of their life. And without it, they were done. What we've read throughout the service as we've, as we've read different portions of Hebrew 9 and then, and then Cody read the whole thing for us, what we begin to see is, is, okay, well, where does Christ fit into all of this? He fulfilled everything that the ark stood for. He, he, he's the one whose blood was shed. He's the one who gives us entrance into the, the very presence of God. And nothing else needs to happen. Nothing else is needed for us to come into God's presence. He's the one now in whom our hope, security, and identity is found. He's the one to whom we run and say, Christ, lead me. By your Spirit, lead us. See, God didn't actually leave his people with nothing. Yes, the, the, the glory departed. There was the, the, the intertestamental period. They tried to build a new temple. The glory of God never came back and dwelt on that. We have no record of that. But what did come was Christ, the very Son of God, to tabernacle among his people to be their hope, to be their security, to be their identity, to, to pay for our sin. And when he left, he gave his spirit to guide us. But like Simon, like the apostles, like the Israelites, we still have this tendency to flip the script and to seek our will in Jesus' name. And we're really good at baptizing all kinds of stuff so that it sounds holy. And it's not just one group or another that does it. It's all of us. It's all of us. What this scripture teaches us, what it warns us about is doing that. We don't seek our will through Christ. We seek his will. And him to guide us. Him to lead us. We seek his kingdom, not our own. We seek his glory, not ours. See, 
just because we now have access to God through Christ in a way that the Israelites didn't doesn't mean that we get to use him for whatever we want. He's still God. Jesus is God, the same God we read about here. And yes, he's paid for our sins. Yes, he has brought us into the very presence of God. Yes, we we can sing before the throne of God above. But we dare not treat him like some kind of totem that gets us whatever we want. That's idolatry. Rather, we go to him and we say, as we pray every week, your kingdom come, your will be done. And that's what we pursue in life. And that's what we pursue in his name in life. Because he won't be used any more than Yahweh would be used in the Old Testament. But he will guide us. He will be with us. He will, by his spirit, strengthen us. He will lead us in that pursuit. That's my prayer for us. So whatever we do as a church, whatever we do as individuals, we would do so seeking not our will blessed in Jesus' name, but seeking his kingdom, regardless of what it costs us. For then, then we have hope, security, and identity. Otherwise, the glory will depart if it hasn't already. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope of your word. We thank you that that you remind us that you are a true God, a God who will not be used by his people to accomplish our worldly wills. But you are a God who has given himself to us. You are a God who, who has made himself known to us. You are a God who has sent his son to redeem us who has given us your spirit that we might know your will. Father, we confess that we are so very quick to seek our will in your name because we're scared of the pain of life. And we just want some level of security some level of certainty. But we are aware, Father, that as we seek that in this world, we never find it. So teach us, Father, by your Spirit and your grace and in your mercy, rather than using you as a totem to bless our worldly plans, teach us to seek your kingdom. And be satisfied with your good, pleasing, and perfect will. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of scripture and theology.